Welcome to Design Talk. In the next few episodes, we'll be looking at the design ecosystem for new products and new ventures, working across the product team interface, understanding how to work with teams from the outside in and the inside out. Hello, I'm Sunil Kumar. And I'm Leo. Uh, we are pleased to welcome Dave Anderson, author, technical fellow for the Bajar Voice, blogger, and one of the hosts for Serverless Crick, a podcast by Serverless Edge. First, Dave, could you say a few words about yourself to begin? Sure. My name is Dave Anderson. I'm, I live in Belfast. I'm a computer science graduate. I've been working in technology for around 25 years. Um, I been at Bazaar Voice for a year now as a technical fellow, which is, um, can I, I lead the global strategy for the Bazaar Voice. We work in kind of retail and um, we supply reviews and um, content to retail sites, like um, all the big shopping sites. Um, and I've also wrote a book called The Value Flywheel Effect, which is how to maximize value in the cloud, or to join your architecture and business strategies. So, um, and I spent a lot of time on kind of um, cloud transformation and helping companies um, excel and accelerate in the cloud. So primarily work with AWS, but techniques I talk about also work for um, Azure and Google, other large providers. So um, I've been a software engineer for my entire career. So again, very much a big fan of the software engineer architecture and how that can uh, drive a business forward. Uh, tell us about your new book, uh, The Value Flywheel Effect, and motivation for writing it. So um, prior to Bizarre Voice, I spent uh, 14 years working at uh, Liberty Mutual, one of the largest insurance companies in the world. Uh, they're a $40 billion insurance company. And while I was there, I, I was in a CTO position for Liberty in Ireland. And one of the tasks I had was how do we modernize software in the cloud? So I, sp I spent around seven years trying to figure out a way to what's the best way to write software in, in the cloud. And that came to this idea of the value flywheel effect, which is when you um, write software a certain word, way, you can drive your business forward. And the value flywheel effect, we can talk more about this later, but there's four phases. The first is clarity of purpose. If a company has clarity of purpose, then they will they will write good software. Second challenge, if the right environment exists, the, the engineering teams, and that's very productive. Next best action, if you use the cloud in the appropriate manner, then you'll go fast. And the fourth is long-term value, which is the important of architecture and a big system. And those four elements of the flywheel, if you, if you look after those four, your engineering and your business will speed up. Okay, so what do you think is the value of a good visualization? It's really for technology is it's an abstract and virtual thing. We often talk about creative ideas as we try and agree what things are. Um, a good visualization is absolutely essential in getting people to think the same way. Uh, a good visualization should raise questions it should help people understand gaps, both in the solution and in their own understanding. And a good visualization, most importantly, should facilitate a good conversation because technology is created by teams of people. 
and those teams of people need to be able to think in the same way. So it's absolutely critical. The next question is quite interesting. Uh, uh, you are an advocate for Wardley maps. So what other uh, visual methods do you use? So Wardley mapping is the technique that I've been using for the past 10 years to, to work out strategy. And it's really a way of, and I can explain what it is um, briefly. Um, for every strategy, there's a couple of things that, that are in place. The first is every strategy should have a customer. So you start with a customer need. And then there's like a value chain of dependencies under that need. So like you think of a, I don't know, if you need, um, you know, to buy an airline ticket, then that depends on um, uh, a website, a backend server, a computer. There are things that will, like a value chain. And every technology in that dependency chain, the value chain, has got an evolutionary um, axis. And technology, all technology evolves the same way. It goes through four stages. The first stage is genesis, when the technology is brand new. It's like, it's, it's revolutionary. The second is custom build, that you can actually, we know how to build this technology. We understand it a little bit. The third is product, where there's massive customer demand. And then the fourth is commodity or utility, where it's just the cost of doing business. So every technology evolves through those four cycles. So if you identify a customer need, break out all the dependencies, and then evolve those dependencies, you can tell which is the most important technology in that stack. So this is a fantastic technique to understand technical strategy and business strategy. Um, other visual methods that I've used in the past would be like um, whiteboarding. The importance of basically drawing in a whiteboard to align people's understanding is critical. Impact, impact mapping is very important because again, it's quite like wordly mapping where you, you have a goal and you map out the things that could happen. And then also a, a straight old architecture diagram. So what foundation architectures that people should know about for working in tech and what level of detail they need to pay attention to? Well, so the thing about architectures, I would, I would say, I don't think I would let five fundamental architectures. I would think the concept of architecture is foundational because depending on your problem, there's usually one correct architecture. So it's, it's very important to read about architecture, to understand the different types and to value architecture. Um, some engineers skip architecture step and it, it, it doesn't work well. So um, I think the most important thing in architecture is two things. One, to appreciate that architecture is important and two, be aware of many different styles and types of architecture because different problems have different approaches. If you constantly think about, you could think about one architecture style like serverless, I think everything must be serverless, that's a mistake. So you have to be quite open in your thought process. So Dave, uh, do you have a favorite classic software architecture? My, my, my favorite one is probably event-driven and event-driven architecture is very interesting because when you have discrete components of software, 
and they communicate via events. Um, it's really easy to scale those, and it's really nice to both um, extend those as well. It's also very, um, it's a nice architecture to work in the cloud. The cloud is event-driven. So if you design your software to be event-driven, it's a nice way to create boundaries between components. And then you can use those same boundaries to structure your teams. So, you can, so the, a good software architecture should also be reflected in your, in your software teams. So I think event-driven is probably my favorite. Soft engineers work from a single line of code to the whole program level. Is software architect any different? I don't think so. Um, I think with software engineer, you need to understand low level detail in the big picture. That architecture is, is the same. Um, software architecture, in my mind, is part of software engineering. It's not two different things. It's, it's um, ar architecture is a function of software engineering. It just so happens sometimes with people who do that all the time. If you think of software engineering as, you know, requirements, architecture, design, implementation, and verification, and deployment, all of those five steps can have specialist people who are very, very good at that. But a software engineer must be able to understand all those phases. Uh, so, Dave, uh, no one wants to read technical documentation. Uh, can you talk about uh, social behavior and uh, practices that help teams create, share, and maintain knowledge? I think one of the most important things, there, there's several, that's a good question. There's several important things about technical documentation. The first thing is all documentation must be living documentation. So people in the team should be empowered to change and update that documentation. Uh, the second is the... Um, the ability to write well is very, um, it's underappreciated. Um, it's easier to write software than it's to write good documentation. So uh, like you guys, if you're an engineer in math, you spend a lot of time doing math, doing English is just as important because the ability to write short, clear, clean and concise language is very, very difficult. But that is a skill that you must almost practice through your entire career. And then one of the things that you can do is write good documentation because of that. So the ability to summarize the points in a very concise way is critical. So Dave, do you have any final word or advice for the audience? I think the one thing I would say is, I think the, the importance of the cloud is absolutely critical. I think learning um, how to build software in the cloud it's probably the most important skill you could learn. Um, so what I would encourage people to do is um, embrace the cloud platforms, look at the, um, the free workshops and labs that you can use. It's very important to build the code, but what's probably more important is the ability to visualize the system. And the best way to visualize the system is to look at, think about the, the diagram of your system and recreate that in the cloud do that in the, as easy as a way as possible. Once you, you can actually create a nice clean system and then implement that in the cloud, then you'll be able to present and share that with other uh, engineers in a very easy way. Any questions, audience? Well, I've got some questions. Okay. Can I grab the mic yeah. for you there for a second? I'm just, uh, I was thinking um, in terms of 
uh, architectures or classic architectures, on the one hand, you've got sort of the foundations of the internet, TCPIP, right? And then from that, we end up with, I, I don't know, is there a history or an evolution of um, TCPIP through to client server, through to message-based computing, through to cloud? Is, is there an architectural evolution? Um, and some of these different architectures, or what we might think of as different ways of organizing the, the way computing um, operates, are they more styles than they are architectures? Um, is architecture the specifics of your own environment, your own company's sort of uh, systems? That's a great, that's a great question. I actually think um, architecture has come full circle in the past probably 25 years. Um, I started my career working in telecoms with a lot of TCP IP, a lot of Unix, a lot of very specific um, architectural styles. The classic uh, Unix principle is do one thing and do one thing well. Unix is the classic kind of distributed architecture. But as we've evolved through like towards the internet, um, the thing that has moved is when Unix first came around, it was on a single machine, like a mainframe. Everything was on a single machine. So a lot of the, the principles of Unix were about keeping things um, atomic and spaced out. But as we've moved to the internet, we've had, a, we've had to compensate for the, 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 the evolution of compute storage and network. So as we've been going, going through that evolution, we've gone through client server, three-tier service-based, different types of architectural styles. Now that the cloud has become kind of ubiquitous, we're almost back at the mainframe principles of the 70s and 80s. So I think the evolution of architectural styles has been influenced by the um, evolution of um, compute. So I think that the strange thing is a lot of the principles you see today in cloud are the same principles that were created 30 to 40 years ago. So we've almost went full cycle. Um, that's why when I talk about event-driven architecture, it's actually very similar to the message-driven architecture of uh, the, the 80s. So the idea of um, that Unix has of one, do, each application does one job and does it well, um, you can kind of see in a distributed environment that those processes are spread across the network. Um, and, and, and then coming back full circle in a serverless environment, you come back to a virtual machine that has all those, all those processes uh, built into one machine, essentially one virtual machine. Is, 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 yeah, am I getting that, it wrong? Yeah, well, it, it's, I would say it's um, in Unix, we had the process and now we've got the service. So in the cloud, it's the service. The service could be S3, it could be Lambda, um, it could be EventBridge. So it, it's a service representing compute, storage, analytics, uh, an event, um, uh, a business process, um, an event bus, uh, an ML in, uh, model, um, even so, some things like an image recognition um, service. So this, this, the service has replaced the process, if you know what I mean. And we, we access those services through the AWS console or the Google console or the Azure console. Is this what people refer to as a microservices architecture? Um, um, 
Yes, but the microservice is more about what's behind the service, the implementation of it, in, in a quite a purest way. It's just it's service based. Um, so, but you're correct. It's a correct a, a, a connection. When you're building a piece of software, you should build it as a microservice. So you should think of it as a service that's self-contained with very little dependencies. Um, you're no longer writing a piece of code, you're writing a service. And again, that service should provide, um, it, it, should, it should solve a problem or solve a need for your consumer. And just a, a, perhaps a quick note on um, the, I, I suppose the fundamental architecture that we're using today in, in, in terms of cloud-based computing, it's uh, through the web, it's a TTW interface into a system somewhere else, isn't it? So you've, you've got this sort of separation of, of, of uh, interface from computation, from storage, from, uh, and security has to work all through that. There are some services that have to be running at all time, don't they? Is, is there a fundamental architecture that people talk about? I still think it's service-based um, because I think... Um, or are they converging? Are we converging towards a sort of similar architecture? I think, I think we're converging. Um, I, I used to make this point around, around 10 years ago, we had um, lots of different services on different platforms. We had things on you know, Microsoft, on uh, Azure, sorry, on Microsoft, maybe something on Google, something on uh, Cloud Foundry. The technology influenced the platform. Now you can pretty much put everything on a single platform. So we are converging on the cloud providers. Um, we may see a cloud standard, the, CNCF, Cloud Native Compute Foundation, are starting to try and standardize on some of these things. So we may in the future, by the time some of you um, are um, maybe in, in, in your jobs, you may find that there is a standard for cloud. But I, I, I would start to think now, that what, what is the standard for cloud? And how should we be writing things? Um, a lot of the underlying things, the, the lower level, like security things are taken care of by the cloud provider. So how that, how that um, manifests itself for um, cloud engineers is secure by design principles, like the privilege of least access. So we, things are access is reduced down and how you think about authentication and authorization. So again, security is very important, but you've got to think of it slightly differently. Okay, so design principles, but not necessarily the same architecture approach or arrangement of application. Yeah, I, I think there's still an underlying architecture approach of, of event-driven. Now, there are some legacy architectures that are still in the cloud. Um, you can still get a, a, get a, a virtual image, and install software on it, and treat it like a traditional uh, software application. That's not a bad thing, but it's... I would say it's uh, an, out, out, an outdated way of working. And with the growth in the functionality from AI libraries, and you mentioned machine learning earlier, um, that kind of fits very nicely with this, uh, with, with your uh, model, doesn't it? Because they can be services too. Yeah, absolutely, it's completely. And so there's, there's, a, there's a very, if, if, there's one, if there's one thing I, I would leave you with, um, there's a, there's a, it's actually quite an old saying. It's a saying that code is a liability. So the more code you write, the 
higher the liability. So you could say that, um, so just think of it, you could say, I had, a, I had a good day at work today. I wrote 10,000 lines of code, right? That's 10,000 lines of code that you had to write, that you have to maintain, that you have to make sure it's secure, you have to test, and then you have to run that code somewhere and pay for it. And you need to even support that code when it's in production. Or you could say, I had a problem today. And as part of the system, I'm trying to write. One of the problems is I need to call a machine learning function. So instead of writing 10,000 lines to, to create a machine learning model, I can call a machine learning function, maybe write 100 lines of code. And let the cloud provider look after the complexity of testing, maintaining, supporting, securing, and paying for that software running. And what you've done is you've created some logic to run on that service. So again, the mindset here is code is a liability. The system is the asset. So think about the system you're building, not the code that you write. So for engineers, we need to think bigger. So I think that idea of code as a liability is very important. The less code you write, the better. You should be able to offload some work that you don't need to do on the cloud provider. That idea of the system is interesting. It reminds me of um, uh, a conversation I had with uh, IT people in a public sector space that had a very complex and very mission-critical national infrastructure that they're responsible for. And uh, one of the best... Uh, tools they had was a visualization of the overall system of over many computers, many systems. Um, that yeah, that visualization was key to them to even to understand what the system was. Yeah, there's there's so one of the um, when you think about event-driven architecture, one of the underlying paradigms that we talk about is domain-driven design. We think about different business domains, and that's why we we design our system through different business domains. A business domain could be, um, you know, billing, um, fulfillment, and then maybe like order processing, different domains within the business. And one of the key um, principles of domain-driven design is what's called the system metaphor, that everyone thinks of the system in the same way and they can actually describe it. And often we will create a system metaphor and use a visualization to help explain that. So that's absolutely critical. If there's ever a software system that no one really understands, that is a massive problem. And I'm thinking uh, some systems often include third-party plugins or services. Um, do we even know what the whole system consists of? Because we often depend on third parties for parts that we're not even kind of conscious of. I was going to say um, um, it's okay to include third parties in that system metaphor because they represent um, a service or a, or a function they were doing. Where it gets difficult is the, um, is the supply chain, is understanding where the risk is in that. So it's okay to have third parties in that system. But again, if there could be a common denominator in the supply chain, maybe all of, all of your third party um, systems are all on, I don't know, a very, maybe a very poor cloud provider and maybe their reliability is not very good. So um, so it's, it's okay to have third parties in, in your system, but you need to think about the supply chain. So link that to um, open source and inner source. How does that all work? 
keeping versions in sync or is it necessary because backwards compatibility is a design principle too? Um, well, I, I think the, the supply chain of open source is, is very complex and the, the strength of supply chain in open source is the size of the community. If there's a large dedicated community, then it's a, it's a, it's a pretty robust supply chain. For open source, where the risk is, if it's a very small community and you're maybe using something that is um, not maintained or not supported, uh, it's the same with inner source. It's the strength of the with both inner source and open source. It's the strength of the community which gives you that reassurance, because many eyes will 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 do the right thing if you have a lot of people working on something. Now, versions, I suppose you can, can save, uh, cloud computing can save the day, can't it? Because if you've got a very specific version of a service you need to run to operate with your software, you can have that in your own virtual machine. Well, there's actually, there, there's, there's, there's two, there's two, you're absolutely correct. Uh, the cloud providers have to run every version to keep them all supported. So they will do the version management for you if you're using um, a, a virtual machine. But if you're using a service, then you don't know what version is, is going on under the hood. It's hidden away from me. So they will completely manage that. So with some of the serverless services like Lambda, if they upgrade, uh, like say the Perl library or like a, a Node.js library, if they upgrade that, you don't even notice. It just happens under the hood. So many times, um, if a open source library is upgraded in, in serverless, you don't even have to do anything. There's zero maintenance because the cloud provider does it for you. Which means your designers, your architects have to have uh, given a lot of thought to your API um, and the sort of method call order. Everything has to, in a sense, stay be bulletproof for the future. Um, yeah, yeah, but like I say, um, yeah. But yeah, that's if it's a breaking change, but a lot of those open source changes, um, very few library changes will impact um, your actual code, if you know what I mean. Uh, usually they don't deprecate stuff as much, but it's usually uh, um, compile time dependencies usually get you. you. You mentioned earlier the idea that code is a, li um, is a liability and um, we've talked in this class previously about the principle of simple design from extreme programming and refactoring, those two things work together, don't they, to kind of balance the kind of code generation risk we have with so many programmers? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, 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 if I would take anything away, I think the design of software is the single most difficult and single most important thing that you have to do. Um, if your implementation is difficult, then it's probably because you've, your design isn't good enough. Um, and, and that is that is the most important thing. The software design, it's it's a very poorly understood area, but it's absolutely critical important. Um, so an, an XP is probably the, the XP principles are probably the best around. It's probably the best approach to software engineering around having a, um, a whole solution of the right, the right principles for um, writing software. Even things like the Boy Scout rule, you know, um, when you come across a piece of code, you should leave it in a better state than you found it. There's so much good advice in the extreme programming community. So if, if if you want to be a software engineer, I would pay very close attention to extreme programming. Two, two areas um, I just throw at you, uh, put out there for uh, discussion, maybe, or, or some thoughts or comments. Um, 
I remember uh, I've seen calls for green code or, yeah, let's call it green code, uh, sort of sustainable, energy efficient. Is that a, a big move or is that something that people aren't really getting behind yet? Yeah, it's the, 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 there's a great resource called the Green Software Foundation, which is worth looking at. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's very simple. Um, let's think of, of um, three models, right? Um, you've got a piece of software running on a machine in your own data center. You have the same piece of software running a machine on an Amazon data center. And then you have the same system implemented in a serverless way. Right. The carbon footprint of the software in your data center will be much higher because like you, you are not going to run a data center more effectively than Amazon. So no like the only companies the best companies in the world that run data centers are like Amazon, Google, you know, Facebook, people like the really, really big companies. So they will run their data centers in the most carbon efficient way. So you run that yourself, it won't be more efficient. But if you move that straight to Amazon, then they will run the data center in a more carbon efficient way, right? The cooling, the power, etc. But the efficiency of your software depends on how well you've written it, right? So Amazon are responsible for the sustainability of the cloud. You're, you're responsible for the sustainability in the cloud, which is the software you write. So the most sustainable way to write software is to offload some of the work to Amazon as well. So the way you do that is through servers and managed services. So a Lambda is more carbon efficient than an EC2, it's a virtual machine. So what people are starting to find that uh, you can actually measure your carbon score from on-prem through uh, virtual enemies through servers. And the, 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 the serverless measure for carbon usage is much lower than either public cloud virtual image or on-prem private cloud virtual image. So this is something that will become a thing. Um, all the major cloud providers now have a tool that you can measure your carbon footprint for your software. Uh, it, it, it comes in now on Amazon or AWS as part of your bill. You can see your bill and your carbon usage. And another thing you can do is you can move your workload to a more carbon efficient region. So for example, um, Let's just give a quick example. Uh, in Sydney, I believe there's two data centers in Sydney or in Australia. There's Sydney and Melbourne. Now, in Sydney, the power grid, there's a lot of uh, fossil fuel runs the data center in Sydney. So the carbon efficiency is not very good. In Melbourne, it's a very green data center. So if you're in Australia, you could get a much better carbon measure by moving your workload to Melbourne. If you're in Sydney, you'll get a higher carbon score, like, like worse carbon score. So you can actually select the data centers in Ireland are pretty green. Uh, in Europe, it's starting to get better. Uh, in some countries like in, in China, they're not great. So each each data center has a measure. So if you look at the, the Green Software Foundation, you can actually see what the measures are for um, data centers. So there's two factors. Um, selecting a data center that is um, carbon efficient and then selecting a a carbon-efficient architecture, which used it today as a service, would be the best one. And so how does that play out in the cryptocurrency space, um, I wonder? Not very well. So crypt cryptocurrency is just, you know, using a lot of compute to cycle through the, um, the mining. Um, 
I believe there are starting to be reports coming out of cloud providers that uh, the percentage of compute used by uh, mining cryptocurrency is very, very high, and that will start to become noticed as we start to move, as we start to get more, um, um, as we start to take more seriously the, uh, the, the, the resources that we use. And, and segueing there to the idea of architecture again, um, the blockchain architecture isn't actually an efficient architecture, is it? It's intentionally um, uh, compute ex intensive, isn't it? Yeah, well, blockchain's an interesting one. It was a technology that had a huge amount of promise and lots of people have spent a lot of time looking at it. And it's, it's a classic example of uh, a solution looking for a problem. Many of the answers for blockchain didn't really play out. There are some uh, interesting use cases, but in general, we're, we're, we're still looking for, I would say as an industry, we're still looking for the real killer blockchain application. And maybe to wrap up, um, a total uh, off the wall kind of uh, question. Do you have any thoughts on quantum computing? Will that fit into the web-based um, serverless architectures we're moving towards, or is it going to be? Is it a separate system? No, I think it absolutely will. Uh, uh, quantum computing will be if if we ever get there, because the quantum computing that will happen tomorrow. It's still very technically challenging, um, but there are some things. Um, think of security perspective. Um, there are some encryption keys that will take compute now, maybe like several months to crack. Quantum computer could crack those in seconds. So there's there's a lot of threat towards encryption and processing speed. Um, being able to offload quantum um, processing behind a service, even for things like ML, things like that, will be absolutely a game changer. So um, imagine that if you had a, a service that was doing a certain amount of compute, and as quantum is added, that gets faster. So you're actually benefiting from the cloud providers speeding up. I mean, it's, it's different, but you can see um, AWS are making their compute more efficient and faster by moving to the Graviton processors, Graviton 2, Graviton 3. That's a reduced instruction set. It's not near quantum, but you can see they're improving the processors. So they're making the services faster and cheaper. That'll just contain that trend will continue as we move into quantum. But um, I don't believe the hype is not coming tomorrow. It's going to be a while yet, but it, it will revolutionise compute when it comes along. That's great. I hadn't thought of it in terms of green computing, but yeah, there's real potential there. We've got a question from uh, our hosts again. I'm going to pass the mic back, and we'll wrap up after this. Yeah, Dave. Uh, actually, I have a last question for you. Uh, can you uh, please uh, talk about the rise? Uh, risk, sorry, risk of uh, digital transformation. The risk of digital transformation? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I think digital transformation is critical for every company to go through that. Um, companies that do not digitally transform will basically become extinct. That, that, that will happen eventually. Um, but there is a massive risk in companies doing digital transformation incorrectly. Um, some companies will, in the very name, a digital transformation is something a company does for itself. You transform a company. Some companies will pay a consultancy house a lot of money to transform for them. And 
that's risky. That's a great way to spend a lot of money and not actually change. It's a bit like it's a bit like a crash, like a fad diet. You know, you pay money, you do a fad diet, you lose a few pounds, and then you go back to the way you were before. Real transformation comes from within. So I think you need to actually change the hearts and minds within the company. So when we um, outsource digital transformation, then it becomes risky because it is a cultural change. There's also a technology side to it where you need to um, change how you do technology. You need to do that internally as well. You can't offload that. And then finally, you need to rethink your business model. Part of digital transformation, it's not just technology. It's the three things. It's your, your, your people, your technology, and your business. The third thing is how you change your business. And you may, once you go through that digital journey, you may have a different way of presenting your key business, so a different like uh, business model. So the risks for me are not addressing people, incorrectly focusing on technology, and not thinking about your corporate business offering. Thank you, Leo. We've got another question from the audience. Yeah. Oh, a couple of questions from the audience. Okay. Oh, hi. I, I want to go back to the point where you mentioned that uh, code is a liability and system is an asset. So um, I understand is that uh, we should use as much third-party solutions as we can until uh, the, the cost uh, of you know in-house solution is cheaper. Uh, but can you elaborate on the, the first point that is uh, system is an asset because, because uh, I, I see that we must still maintain the system, uh, we must still test them, so uh, how are they different from code? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when you're solving a problem, Sometimes you need to create a system to solve that problem, and that system could contain five different components. You need to be careful with the code that you write. Like, there's no point writing like a logging framework or like writing a database. You know, you have to write things that are key to the business problem. So if there's things that are like dependencies, you're better to just use them from somewhere else. So be very careful about the components that you write only write the components that are absolutely key to your problem, not things that are dependencies. So it's 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 still extremely important to write code and learn how to write code, but you have to, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a powerful weapon. You only use it when you must have to. It, you don't have to use it all the time. Code is not the answer to every question. Hi, um, can I just ask you, um, can I go back to the flywheel effect for a minute or the value flywheel effect? Could you just elaborate briefly on those four points, particularly the next best action, please? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so when you're when you're in the company, there's a, there's a kind of there's a I would say a movement to how uh, real change happens, especially when you're moving to the cloud. So the, there's four phases of the flywheel. The first is clarity of purpose. You need to be crystal clear what you're doing and why you're doing it. Many times you write software and we don't really know why. The second is you need to create a an environment of challenge, which is psychological safety. You need to have the right environment people can ask questions and challenge the thinking. The third is the next best action. What's the next best thing you can do to solve the problem? Like can you, have, if you've got a good developer experience and you're, you've got several technologies, you can write software really quickly. So what's the next best thing you can do to actually find out if you're answering your problem? And then the fourth phase is long-term value. I think if you're 
long-term architecture and, and have a good definition of what, what it means to be well-architected. So those are the four phases, and I found that they all work in, in harmony with each other. So uh, I got a question. It's also related to the flying wheel effect. Is that uh, correlated to the Morse uh, Morse theory? Like the, each year, the calculation power will double. Do you think this is still a part in the IT industry, or is not keep growing? Um, yeah, that's probably more an exponential model than a flywheel. But it's it's um, it's Moore's law. I think it slowed down recently, but. Um, it's, it's the same idea that technology is exponential, it moves faster, and that's how your technology should be working. It always speeds up. It's not a project that you start and you're done. It keeps getting faster and faster, and you have to move your business with that. So yes, the importance of speed of evolution. So yeah, as you mentioned uh, that uh, writing a lot of lines of code is a basically liability. So do you have any testing mechanism that uh, like if there is a kind of optimization, the code which has been written for the architecture is a optimized code, or how is the testing actually for the architecture done in general? I would say the, the two things, test, test, you need to test functional and non-functional requirements. Um, unit testing code is okay, but you better to test the requirements. So test for security, for reliability, for performance and then test for the actual requirements you're trying to write for, the user requirements. The low-level unit testing is okay. This should just be a validation. It should really test the functional and non-functional requirements. Uh, okay, Dave. Uh, well, uh, we will wrap up there. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us and uh, sharing your thoughts. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you. So thanks for all the questions. I really enjoyed that. A great conversation. Thank you for listening and sharing this episode. The music is dismantled by Ben Pronti and used with his permission. <laughs>